We've been um, in a series on the book of Colossians for the last six weeks or so. And uh, it's one of those books where the more you study it, the deeper you dig into it, the more information is there. And uh, when I was younger and uh, before I was a pastor, I used to wonder how these ministers could preach through a book of the Bible and, you know, like take a word or a, a verse at a time. And I used to think, that, that is really boring. But I realized that as you, uh, you dig into this stuff, it's like, man, this is, this is not boring. This is, this is life-changing stuff, and it's, and it's relevant. It isn't just some um, archaic book, but it uh, connects to our lives. So that's where we're at this morning, and uh, we're making our way through it. And as we begin this morning, um, we're actually doing a second part of a part of the series that I started last week. Heart for Ministry Checkup. And uh, we're going we're to finish that up this morning. But here's a question for you this morning. As you sit and you listen and you interact with what I have to say, what makes you tick? What makes you tick? Not what makes you ticked. What makes you tick? What is it that fuels your fire? What is it that floats your boat? What desires, concerns, or interests dominate your thinking? What are the things that keep you awake at night? What are the things that you think about that wake you up first thing in the morning? What's the content of your daydreaming? What do you dream about? What do you aspire to? Where do your passions lie? That's really the question. What are those things that you are passionate about in your life? People have accused the Apostle Paul of a lot of things, but one of the things that they've never accused him of is being less than passionate. And he was passionate. He was single-minded. And his passion was for Christ and for Christ's church. That is, for the people Christ's church. As we discovered last week, Paul had a big heart for ministry. He had a compassionate heart. A heart that amazingly rejoiced in suffering in suffering for others. A heart that was fully devoted to God, to serving Christ, and to serving other people. And a heart that contained a God-sized vision for what others could become. Mature, perfect, everything that God created them to be. That was his vision for people. Fully mature. Last week we used Paul's ministry heart as a baseline as a standard, the norm by which I asked you to compare your own hearts for ministry, and I conducted a ministry heart checkup. And I asked you three important questions that I hoped would give you a clear picture of where you are, where your heart is, as you consider life and as you consider ministry. So how did you do? I guess I should back up and say, did you think about those questions this past week? And if so, how did you do? What's the condition of your heart as you sit this morning? How did you check out in regards to suffering, service for others, or vision for other people? How big is your vision for people? Are you heart healthy this morning, or are you perhaps in need of emergency open heart surgery? Some of us may be as we sit here this morning. Our heart for ministry checkup isn't over. I have two more questions that I want to ask you this morning. Questions that, like last week, are serious questions. They're personal questions. They're important questions. 
They're questions that Paul raises in this next section of Colossians. And they give us more insight, deeper insight into the condition of our own hearts for ministry and life. I want you to listen to his words to his brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. I'm going to start with verse 28 in chapter 1 and read through verse 7 in chapter 2. Paul says, We proclaim Him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Here's the first question. What is the source of your strength? What is the source of your strength? Where do you get the energy that it takes to live life? Fundamentally, to live life. To do life. Where do you get the strength to do it? Where do you get the energy that it takes to do the hard and the often messy work of life and ministry? Where do you find the spiritual energy to serve Christ and one another? To care, to listen, to confront, to comfort, and yes, even to suffer. Where do you get the energy to do that? If you're like me, I suspect you oftentimes look right here for the energy to do it. Life and ministry, simply put, are difficult. I think it was Scott Peck who started his book, The The Road Less Traveled, with the famous line, Life is difficult. And it is. Ministry is difficult. In fact, in verse 29, I want you to notice how Paul describes his ministry and really how he describes his life. He says, I strenuously contend. Or in some other translations, I labor and I struggle. Literally, Paul tells the Colossians, I agonize. That's what the word means. I agonize. The image of these paintings is of an athlete toiling, struggling, strenuously competing in a very difficult contest. This, says Paul to these Colossian Christians, is what my ministry and what my work on behalf of you looks like. I am working hard. I'm contending for you. I am agonizing over you. Do you ever feel as though your life or your ministry is a battle? Is competition? Of course you do. We all do, don't we? Sometimes it feels as though we agonize over things. Decisions to be made. Relationships. Jobs. Faith. The truth is, life and ministry are difficult. And sometimes we do agonize. And I want to say this morning that it's not necessarily a bad thing. But it's the reality. It's the reality. In Galatians, Paul takes the notion of further, and he compares the work of ministry, are you ready for this? 
to the pains of childbirth. So, there you go. Before you jump into ministry, think about that for a minute. Life and ministry equated to the pains of childbirth? Some of you mothers are saying, absolutely. Pain of childbirth was just minimal compared to the pain of raising these kids, right? So where did Paul find his strength? Where did he get the energy to carry out the demanding, the difficult, and the dangerous ministry that God had called him to? Where did it come from? The source of Paul's strength, not surprisingly, the spring of his energy was Jesus Christ. He says, the energy of Christ, the power of Christ, works in me. I contend for you. I agonize for you. And all the while, the power of Christ allows me to do it. That's where I get my energy. So how do we access Christ's energy for our lives and for our ministries? How do we tap in to that power, that source of energy? And it's probably one of the most important questions, I think, that we can ask. And I marvel at men and women, both in vocational ministry and outside of vocational ministry, who consistently live for Christ and serve Him with their lives faithfully, day in and day out. And I've wondered at times, how do they do it? And yeah, you can say, well, the the, the strength comes from, from God in Christ. You know, they trust Him with their lives. But to consistently trust Him and rely on that strength and that power, um, it's a marvel to me. And it's what I aspire to and what I hope we all aspire to. We begin to draw on the Lord's energy for life and ministry by praying and by developing spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. We begin to draw on the Lord's energy when we pray. That sounds pretty simple, but it's true. When we pray and we practice spiritual habits, when we pray, when we study the Scriptures, when we truly worship God, and I don't mean just here on Sunday mornings, I mean in our lives each day. When we do these things, we somehow free up God's Spirit to change us and to begin to transform us and to develop a mindset in us, an attitude that is absolutely essential to life and to ministry. It doesn't happen any other way. I don't care who you are. I don't care how resourceful you are, how talented you are. You can't muster up the energy to do life and to do ministry faithfully and consistently throughout your lifetime. You will fry. You will burn up. You will burn up and you will blow away. It happens all the time. We aren't like the little engine, you know. Think again, think again, think again. We aren't like that little engine. You can't do it. I've said this before, but I really believe that we are too talented, really, for our own good, most of us. We're too smart. We're too capable. We're too talented. And we don't rely on God to change us. Remember this. All ministry is His work, not our work. And I'm not just talking to the worship team or to the other staff members in our church. I'm talking to all of us. Ministry, and ultimately life, is about Him and not about us. It's His work. This is His church. It's not mine. It's not ours. When ministry is my work, when life is up to me, when everything depends on me, I use my energy. 
And my energy is limited. But when I understand that everything is His work, when I give up control, and that's the key, right? When I give up control, when I let go, I use His energy, His power. And for so many of us to do this is really difficult. Whether it's in ministry, in marriage, in job situations, to let go. Because I think we equate that with quitting and giving up. And it is giving up, but it's not quitting. It's letting go. When I understand that it's His work, I use His energy. When we allow God to use us and work through us, when we give our lives and our ministries to Him, we discover His boundless energy. I don't understand how that works. But when we let go, when we die to ourselves, we find life. And we find energy. We find the resources to do whatever it is that God's called us to do. I learned this lesson within the first week of planning this church when people showed up. And I thought, my goodness. Um, I can't do this. And the last eight years have been this constant struggle of, you know, of me taking control and then me relinquishing control. Me stepping into the middle of everything and me stepping back. And I think that our lives are like that, aren't they? You know, we seize control, we let go. We seize control, we let go. And maybe that's part of, of the condition of being human. But somehow we need to figure out how to let go of this stuff and trust God with our lives. We should never ask this question, which we ask all the time. How can I get more done? How can I free up more time in my calendar? How can I find more hours in the day? We ask that question and we, we need to stop asking that question. The critical question is this. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? What has He called me? You remember last week? What has He commissioned me to do? How does God want me to use my gifts? Where does He want me to serve? That puts things in perspective. So many of us, too many of us, are just crazy. We do this and this and this and this and this is awesome and I can do this. And, and pretty soon, you're just a big pile. You're a heap. Burned out. Tired. And what's the first thing that goes? This. Right? Church stuff. I mean, I can hardly get there on Sunday morning. You're asking me to serve? You've got to be kidding. I've got so many other things to do. And that's another sermon. So... What does God want you to do? That's the question. That puts things in perspective. And I would really challenge you to figure that out. Every single one of you is gifted. And God has a ministry, a place for you to serve. And your life, to a large degree, will be incomplete until you figure out what that is. So here's the final question for our heart checkup. How clear are your goals for others? How clear are your goals I want you to know, Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 2, how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and unified in love so that they have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. It builds to say, namely, Christ. Christ. This is a different question that I'm asking than the one I asked last week. 
which was how big is your vision for people. Most people, many of us, have vision for something. It may be simple, but we have vision. We have dreams. Some of us might even be called visionaries. Are you a visionary? Too many visionaries are unable to see the vision become reality. In fact, many visionaries have no clue how their dream will ever come true. Have you worked with people like that? Some work with me. It's a great idea, right? And then, well, how are we going to do that? I have no idea. But there are people that know how to get it done. Paul had a big vision and he had the whole package. He had a clear vision. He had a big vision and he had a clear purpose. He had clear goals for people. From the beginning, he was able to see the end result. Right? He was able to see what people could become, who they could be, and that drove his vision. So in these verses that I just read, we discover that he had at least three goals for these believers. These are amazing. Here's the first one, and the most important one. Paul wants these believers to know Christ fully. That's what these verses build to, the, the language that he uses. But he wants them to know Christ And it's to this end that he says, in verse 1, that he is contending, that he's agonizing. That's what he's doing. But how is he doing it? How is he agonizing for these friends? What's the context? What's the nature of his agonizing struggle? He struggled for them physically. We know that, right? He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was harassed. He was imprisoned. In fact, he was under house arrest when he wrote this letter. He labored for these friends of his emotionally. He missed them. He said that I I long for you when I'm away from you. But above all else, he contended for his friends spiritually. He struggled. He labored. He agonized over them in prayer. In prayer. I have people in my life, parents, who have agonized over me in prayer. And I suspect that you're here in large part because people are contending for you in prayer. Don't underestimate what prayer is and the effect that it has. And this is what Paul did. It's, it's, it's not the only thing he could do. It's, what, it's all that he could do. He could pray for these friends of his. And notice how he prays. Notice his purpose for these brothers and sisters of his. That they might be encouraged in heart and united. So that, and don't skip over the so that, so that they may have the full riches, listen to this language, of complete understanding. The full riches of complete understanding. When was the last time you prayed for somebody to have that? In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom, he's not done yet, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These treasures are not hidden in a book. They're not hidden in some sacred scrolls. And they are certainly not hidden in a secret code somewhere. They are hidden in a person, Jesus Christ. The mystery which once was hidden has now, Paul says, been made known to the whole creation in the person of Christ. And this is why he struggles in prayer for his friends. It's his goal, it's his singular purpose that they will get a hold of the truth of who Christ is. 
That's how we need to pray. That's how we need to pray for ourselves. And that's how we need to pray for other people. That they, that we may understand fully who Christ is. If we got that, would we not be incredibly different people? When was the last time you agonized over someone's life? Not to get them saved, but they might know Christ. And in the process of coming to know Him in all of His fullness, that they would experience salvation. I have to admit, I don't often pray like this. I pray for all the stuff that pastors are supposed to pray for. But do I agonize over some of you in prayer over this church? Not always. That's God's Word to me through this. So that they might come to know Christ in all of His fullness. And then this purpose. That they would reject false teaching. Verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. That, after all, is one of the purposes that he wrote for which he wrote Colossians, right? The word deceive is an interesting word. And in the Greek it suggests that something exists alongside something else, that it resembles it. Deception always contains a hint of the truth, doesn't it? A piece of the truth. Deception, by definition, is not blatant black and white contradiction. For example, in Colossae, the philosophy that threatened the church was deceptive, not because it said Jesus of Nazareth never existed. It didn't say that. It was deceptive because it denied that He was God. Oh yeah, He existed. He was a fine teacher, a rabbi, a holy man. But come on. Divine? You've got to be kidding. Is that not contemporary? Finally, Paul wants his friends to continue to live in Christ. Or, the translation I like says, to walk in Him. To walk in Christ. To walk in Christ. So then, Paul says, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Walk in Him. How do we integrate faith and action? Is this not a theme that I've been preaching for like eight years? You know, I, I, see, I wake up seeing myself going, you've got faith and you've got life, and how do you bring them together? That's what we're asking, you know? How do we integrate faith and action? How do we bring our theology, our belief about God, in sync with our ethics, with our behaviors? How do we do that? Paul's words are instructive. We walk in Christ. We continue to live our lives in Him, first of all, by being rooted and built up. Christ is the foundation. He's the source. He's the center. We only experience true life and true faith and true freedom by being in Him and by growing in Him. We find our being, as one of my seminary professors said, by being in Him. We discover who we are by being in Christ. We're rooted in Him. He's the foundation of what we believe. And Paul says, remember this. He's the foundation. He's the center. And next we walk in Christ by being strengthened in our faith. The faith that we were taught. We are intentional about spiritual growth. We practice spiritual disciplines. We study. We pray. We worship. We even get involved in a small group, maybe. 
We're intentional. We spend time with other believers. We go deep with people. We get below the surface. We talk about who we really are. And we remember the basics. We recall what we've been taught over the years by those people that have nurtured us and mentored us and loved us and cared for us. Finally, we continue to live in Christ by overflowing with thankfulness. By joyfully giving thanks in all things, by overflowing with thankfulness. Like a river that overflows its banks, we should do the same in thanks for God, for all that He's done for us in Christ and all that He continues to do. Are you thankful this morning? Are you overflowing with thankfulness for all that God's done and all that God's doing in your life? Famous Bible commentator who's been dead for a long time, Matthew Henry. Some of you may have his single volume commentary somewhere in your house or not. He illustrates what it means to live a life that is overflowing with thankfulness. This is amazing to me. He was robbed. Okay? And upon reflection, he came up with four reasons to be thankful. So even thankfulness, we can be intentional about that as well. Four reasons he wrote down to be thankful for what had happened to him. First of all, this had never happened to him before. You laugh, but think about that. Second reason, the robber didn't get away with much money because Matthew Henry didn't have much money. Third, he was not injured or killed. Good thing to be thankful for. And fourth, he was not the one doing the robbing. Now, he was intentional, maybe some of you would think overly so, in his spiritual life, in giving thanks. But I think the point is that we could stand to be a bit more intentional. To sit down and sometimes think, you know, intentionally about what we have to be thankful for for all that God's done for us. Well, among other things, life and ministry includes suffering. And that's a tough thing to think about and to talk about. The suffering for ourselves on behalf of others, service for Christ, reliance upon His power, a clear goal and purpose for people. And in closing, the question is, is will we ever accomplish this? You know, we hear these sermons and we go, well, that's good stuff, but it seems so removed. Will we ever accomplish these things? Will we ever do them perfectly? Will we ever be completely effective in life and ministry? No. <laughs> we won't. At least not on this side of heaven. Life and ministry are difficult. They're messy. And sometimes they're terribly discouraging. But here's the good news. Here's the great news. We are not in this alone. Andy said this earlier. God goes with us. He walks with us in the midst of everything that we face. We have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. And, believe it or not, we have each other. And that's huge. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, while he was in prison waiting to be executed by the Nazis, said this, and he knew what he spoke about. The presence of other believers is a profound source of encouragement. Your presence here and with one another is a profound source of encouragement beyond what you can even imagine. When you show up, you encourage people in ways that you would never know. The church, this church, and all churches should be a place of hope, of encouragement, 
and a profound joy. I hate grumpy Christians. People accuse me of being grumpy. And I have to tell you, I scowl. And it's because when I'm concentrating, I, I look you know, kind of like I'm mad. But just know if I look mad, I'm concentrating. I'm not scowling. I am scowling. I'm not mad. But this should be a place of joy. It should be a place where we affirm all that is good and right and godly in one another. It's a place where we should challenge one another to be everything that God has created us to be. That's why we go deep. It's a spiritual community focused on Christ and committed to calling one another to be something more, something better, something beyond what we can imagine. It's the place where we spur one another on to good deeds, as Paul says in Hebrews. Someone saw something good in me. Someone has seen something good in you. Somebody saw a piece of who God had created you to be and they spoke into your life and that's primarily why you're here, why you're pursuing Christ. May we see Christ in people. May we see the best. And finally, the church is a place where we're equipped to do battle because life is a battle. Life is difficult. And Paul says that this battle is against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 5.12. This is the place where we contend for the souls, for our own souls and for the souls of others. These are some of the realities that Paul touches on and I hope awakens in us as we study this incredible book of Colossians. Amen.